This is the Relevant Life Church podcast, where we are about connecting with God, relating to people, and reaching our world. Tune in as our church goes through this week's teaching in God's Word. Amen. Turn to your neighbor today and tell them in one sentence, one sentence alone, the best thing that happened to you this week. All right, best thing that happened to you this week. If you're on chat, type it in there. Did you guys do it? That was a short sentence. If you were to ask Allie, best thing that uh, happened to her this week, it would be that she woke up every day married to me. Um, if you were to ask me, it's that I only slept on the couch once. Um, I, was, I was messing around. I didn't sleep on the couch at all, um, thankfully. I actually have never had to sleep on the couch, right? You attest to that? Allie's very gracious, even though I'm high maintenance, and all the wives said amen. I guess your husbands are high maintenance, so I'll have to take lessons from them. Anyway, um, I'm excited for today. I want to thank everyone, um, first of all, who donated to summer camp prior to the car wash yesterday. We had a lot of generous donations, as well as those who came and volunteered. If you volunteered yesterday, would you guys stand to your feet real quick? Thank you, guys. Each, each one of them hobbled in this morning, especially Alexis, because she like was crouched all day washing your wheels. So... Uh, make sure you give her a hug and say thank you for that. Um, I also, also want to say thank you to everyone that came out and supported. Uh, I actually, I was sitting here going, man, I love our church family because I felt like, I, I don't know, it was fun working with people that I love, washing cars for some weird reason. Like I just felt good about that. But then seeing all the support, it just made me like, I don't know, kind of just overwhelming to just go, man, our church is amazing. So thank you guys for participating. If you didn't, um, you can give me money later. I'll, I'll put it towards the Trenton Fund. No, I was kidding. Um, no, but we, we raised, you want to know how much we raised yesterday? $1,900, which is well beyond, it's well beyond what I expected that we had raised. And the cool part is um, we have well surpassed covering um, our transportation and paying for our leaders and everything we need to cover for camp. And so now this will go towards this general youth fund. We'll be able to use it for OIC and other activities. So again, thank you for your generosity. Um, kudos to you. So one more hand clap for that. Anyway, today we're kicking off a brand new series called... Some of you guys were really concerned there for a second. You're like, I don't know. How many people were honest? You didn't know how, many, how, how big of a number that was. Anyone? No one wants to admit it? All right, we're kicking off a series called? Seven. Good job. You guys all passed algebra in high school, hopefully. I mean, I don't think you use dashes in, in algebra, but it's fine. Anyway, turn, turn to your neighbor this morning, hold up seven fingers, and say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Allie does this to me every day, and she says, this is the age you act. I'm just kidding. Five, okay. No, so she actually doesn't, but she does think it. So she will, she should, yeah, see, she admits it to it. And again, the wife said, amen. All right, husbands, it's all right. We'll beat up on them later, hopefully. I don't know. We'll see what happens in the wit of my sermon. Anyway, I'm excited for this new series called Seven. Um, and you may be wondering, why on earth do you call it Seven? Did you get lazy and give up on creative titles? Yes, no. Um, there is a specific reason for this today. Um, and as a communicator, my job um, it's a privilege and it's a huge responsibility is to try to do the best I can to support God's word because God's word on its own is amazing. He doesn't need Trenton or any other pastor to come communicate it. You can read it and your life can be changed. But my job as a pastor is to attempt to do my best, to give my best, to do a couple things. So I always aim to do um, multiple things in a sermon. So that's to give life advice. I want you to feel like you walk out if you're going, I can practically apply this to my life. It can help change my life because that's what the word of God is full of. 
Um, I also want to aid emotional and mental and spiritual healing, right? I want, I want to, um, as best as possible, communicate God's word, which does all that work. And I want to aid the Holy Spirit in doing that. Another one is I want you to be reminded of the unparalleled hope of who Jesus is, right? Like there's, there's no other hope greater than God and what's declared in this Bible. And fourthly, this is the most important, is I hope to deepen your theology so your understanding of who God is so you can better pursue him. And I hope this series does all that. But this series is unique in the fact that it's centering on the fourth goal of what I get up to do and preach. And that's to deepen your theology of who God is. How many people like feel like they are just confident of who God is how many people feel like they can improve on how they view God? I feel like everyone should raise their hand. I'm a pastor, and I like looked at the series. And I was like, what are you doing, Trenton? You're stupid because this is really hard. Um, I ser- I'm not kidding. I knew going in this series, this was going to stretch me. I was talking to Pastor Kevin this week about it. I was like, I chose this series knowing it was going to stretch my ability to communicate and comprehend God and his word in a, in, a, in a new way. And I hope that as I stretch myself, you're willing to commit to stretching yourself as well. So that's where the number seven comes into play. So like I said, if, you, if I was in your shoes, I'd be like, did he get lazy? Did he come up with, like, he was tired of coming up with creative titles? But no, that is not the reason why. There's a reason behind the number seven. See, numbers play a significant role in our lives every day, right? Whether it's your bank account number, how many people like high numbers in your bank account, right? Everyone's like, amen. Um, whether it's your calendar, right? I mean, you, gotta, you have to know which day of the week it is so you can plan ahead. Whether it's time of the day, how many people don't use the clock very well? even though there's numbers on it. Just admit, you know? Okay. Um, See, so that's important too. They help us um, prioritize our money, like I said, our calendar, our time. They help us solve problems. Most importantly, they help us remember important dates, right? Like anniversary, right? Or a birthday. How many people have forgotten their anniversary before? Anybody? No? Okay, cool. Um, That's good. Don't admit that. Anyway, so like I said, every single number has value and meaning. And if you look around, you'll find them everywhere, especially the number seven. And so I compiled a list. I also heard another pastor open up a message series similar to this. So I stole some of his list as well as looked at my own. But I'm just going to rattle off a bunch. So there's seven wonders of the ancient world. How many people knew that? Seven wonders of the ancient world. There's seven continents on our planet. You're like, wait, what? I didn't know that. Seven colors in a rainbow, seven days in a week. There's seven individual notes in a musical scale. And I hopefully said that right. I checked with Blake yesterday, so I didn't sound stupid. When I was talking about it, it has to do with like chromatic scale and I don't know. Okay, let's ask him. There's seven deadly sins. There's seven digits in every phone number. It's recommended that you get a minimum of seven hours of sleep every night, right? That's the human body says that. Um, Trenton and Allie Wright got married in the seventh month of the year. Come on. Um, also, seven is the number of completeness and perfection. So that's why we got married there because we're perfect and complete already. Um, seven has also become known as the magic number. There was a paper by a psychologist by the name of George Miller that was published in 1956. And the title of the, the paper published was The Magical Number of Seven Plus or Minus Two. And he argued, one of the arguments in this paper was that the human's ability, short-term memory, can hold on to seven digits right? And they can write them down. So if I were to list off seven digits this morning, the average person in this room, you might be below average, it's fine. The average person in this room would be able to remember that and write it down. Some would only get five. And then there's like the rarity, because again, plus or minus two, some would get five. Some, if I rattle off more, would get nine. Does that make sense? So it's become known as the magical number seven. Seven is also all throughout the Bible. God created the world in six days, but he rested on the seventh day. There's seven feasts or Jewish holidays. There's seven churches in Revelations. Um, The nation of Israel is in captivity for 70 years in Babylon, so seven times ten. In Revelation, there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Someone decided to count up all the occurrences of seven in the Bible, and it totaled to 735 instances. Seven's everywhere, okay? 
But the point of this series, the goal, and the reason we call it seven is not just because I like saying seven. It's because one of the greatest occurrences in the Bible where seven appears is these statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. See, John wrote an eyewitness account of Jesus' life so that we can now look at it and read it and understand. And in his Gospel, he records Jesus making seven statements. They're now known as the I Am statements of Jesus. And in these statements, Jesus makes very profound and powerful and specific declarations of who he is. And he uses imagery that humanity would understand and they would be able to grasp. And he uses um, specific story-like images, like I said, so that we could go, I understand who God is in better light. See, he says, I'm the bread of life. He says, I'm the light of the world. He says, I'm the vine. He says, I'm the door. He says, I'm the good shepherd. He says, I'm the resurrection of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so the goal of this series is we're actually going to look at each one of these statements every week. We're going to go, this is, what the, this is what Jesus said. This is who he is because he declared about himself. Because like how many people have found themselves like getting put um, in bad light because of someone else's words about you? Does that make sense what I'm asking? So in the sense of like your reputation precedes you because someone else has said something about you, right? And so you're like, you have to try to adjust that. No, Jesus said of himself who he was. And so I believe as a pastor, my job is to understand that. I believe as a believer who says you like believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you need to understand that, right? So that's what we're going to be accomplishing in the weeks to come. You guys sound super excited. So my, my request and challenge is that I know it's summer vacation. Next week we have multiple families gone. My request is that if you're in town, you show up and you listen to these series because you're going to be challenged by it. If not, you need to watch online because I believe this is going to deepen your theology and help you better pursue God and also see what God does for you. Because sometimes like we hear all these great declarations. We just prayed about this revival that God gives us and we actually don't know how he revives us. We don't know what, what power we're tapping into when we say that. And so as you understand who Jesus is, it's going to impact your life. That's a good word, right? So anyway, if you were paying attention, um, you might have noticed, I don't know if I said this, but this is an eight-week series. So eight weeks. And so if you're like, you're good at math, you're going, where well, there's seven statements, but there's eight weeks. Well, like what happened? To be honest, my boss told me how to cover eight weeks. So you have to listen to your boss. So I was like, shoot, I got to come up with a different week. But the more I thought about it, actually, I realized how pertinent this week's going to be. So I'm not going to cover one of the I am statements of Jesus this week. You'll have to come back. But what I do want to instead do is ask one vital and important question. And I believe this question is essential and it's the foundation of this whole series. And that question is this, why does it matter who Jesus is? It's the title of my message. Why does it matter who Jesus is? Turn to your neighbor and say, why does it matter who Jesus is? And then respond back and go, I don't know. That's why I'm listening to this series. <laughs> See, again, we're going to look at, we're going to spend seven weeks looking at who Jesus is, but why does it matter to you? Because the question is important because you can know who Jesus is, but why it matters or doesn't matter determines his ability to change your life. Think of it in this terms. I'm sure all of us took math in high school. If you skipped out on it, please let me know so I can have my children do it in the future. No, I was messing with you. Um, but um, I remember in high school so many times going, why do I have to like, do this? And like, the teacher's response, like, if it was ever asked, was like, you're going to need it down the road. How many people like, heard that, right? I have two responses to this. One, that is a lie because I have not used... <laughs> Algebra or geometry since graduating high school other than to cause insecurity, anxiety, and shorten my life expectancy, okay? So that is a lie. Number two, unless you're cool and you're good at math, like Ashley Banker, who are, who's good at math? Like, let's just, all right, I hate all of you. 
In the best way possible, I hate all of you. I'll probably call you in the future so you can counsel my children because I will not be able to help them. Um, but the second reason this, this, this thing stands out to me is because they, knew, they needed to supply sufficient reason for people like me to pay attention. Because without me knowing why it mattered, why I was learning, I was not going to put my best effort in it and I wasn't going to let it affect me. And this is the same thing with Jesus. Without knowing why it matters who Jesus is, who he is can be irrelevant. And I know that's kind of like, I try to simplify my statements as best as possible. It will make sense towards the end of the sermon, I promise you. So why does it matter who Jesus is? I want to answer this question by looking at a groundbreaking passage of scripture found in the eyewitness account of Matthew. So we're going to be looking at John in the weeks to come, but right now we're going to look at Matthew. And so this is a passage of scripture PK just used it to open his last sermon. I have used it in sermons. We have looked at this ser- or this message or this sorry passage of scripture many times. So you guys are going to be familiar with it, but I have never preached it in this light and I've never understood it in this light. And so I want to answer this question by looking at this passage of scripture. And what I want you to go in with the context and the preface for this is that this is a groundbreaking passage of scripture. This is absolutely groundbreaking. I think sometimes, like, I knew this, but as I studied it more, I was like, wow, this is, like, life-changing material that we're talking about here. And so the context I want to give you going into it is that this, um, by commentators, has been labeled as life's ultimate question. But on top of that, one commentator said this is a storm center for New New Testament interpretation, a.k.a. meaning this is not an easy passage of Scripture to unpack or understand. The Roman Catholic Church has taken this passage of Scripture and based a whole thing of theology that I actually don't agree with off this passage of Scripture. And so many people have gone, this is what this means, this is what this means. I'm going to do my best today to go, this is what I believe it's supposed to mean, as well as go, this is what the Holy Spirit told Trenton. So I'm going to do my best to do that, and if you hate me at the end, you can run over me in the parking lot. I don't care. I'm just kidding. That's not a good thing to say. Last week, by the way, I didn't tell you this. Frank came up yesterday. He's like, I expect you to clean the undercarriage of my car. So I was like, thanks, PK. I didn't do it, but it's fine. I seriously considered it. I was like, how can I at least give somewhat of effort? But I'm a tall guy and not the most skinny either. So I probably would have got stuck and then I wouldn't be able to preach to you today. So anyway, we're going to read this passage of scripture. So if you have a Bible with me, um, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, or if you want to on your phone or device, otherwise you can read it on the screen. And really quick, so you understand, Jesus's ministry, um, scholars speculate, was three years long. So that's from when he did his first miracle until he died and went to heaven, right? Actually died, rose, and then went to heaven. Got to get that order right because that's like where our faith lands. It's fine. Anyway, uh, so he was about 30 years old when this started. He did ministry for three years. And so during that three-year ministry, he started to get quite the following. He started to teach um, amazing principles. He started to do amazing miracles. And in turn, two things happened. He got a ton of followers that wanted to experience Jesus, as well as he got a ton of flack and hatred from the religious leaders. And so at this point where we're about to read, he's well known. And he, like the religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. And so Jesus has a lot of weight on his shoulders. So do his followers. So in the context of the story, Jesus is trying to get away from all this for a little bit and reground himself, right? It's like taking a day off. So him and his disciples travel to Caesarea Philippi, which is 25 miles north of where they're at. And that's where we're going to step into our story today. So Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? I'm not going to do my best job of explaining what that means. I'm just going to say Jesus called himself the son of man often. And like, from my understanding, he did this. So he was expressing that he was fully human. So looking back, people would go, he's fully human. He's also fully 
God. And also Daniel 7 in the Old Testament prophesies of the Son of Man. So Jesus claimed this title for himself. That's all you need to know. So he says, who do, you say, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, which Herod, who killed John the Baptist, saw Jesus doing miracles and was like, this must be John the Baptist risen from the dead, which is pretty crazy. But you know, whatever. Um, others say Elijah and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And the funny part about all this is every, all, every single person that they just listed is dead. So they're saying Jesus has come back to life as one of these men, which is pretty supernatural and bizarre. So talk about faith placed in the wrong thing. But, you know, so he says, but what about you? He asks, what about you? So to the disciples, he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. So when he says flesh and blood, he's not meaning someone didn't come up and tell you this. He's not saying you like logically thought of this. My father revealed this to you. It's a, it's a thing that God had to um, uncover. He had to uncover the mystery and show you who I was. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, which in the Greek means rock. So he says, I tell you that you are rock and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's where a lot of people get confused, especially like Roman Catholicism where Peter's such an essential piece. No, Peter's just another guy like any one of us. He cut off a guy's ear. He denied Jesus. I mean, he was a messed up guy, okay? I mean, how many people have cut off somebody's ear, right? Peter was in a boat of his own of, of specialness. It's fine. Anyway, he said, uh, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, say from that time on. We're going to come back to that. That's important. Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Like, who corrects God? I'm telling you, Peter's, Peter's in a boat of his own. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. How many people have been called Satan before? I'm just saying. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So turn your neighbor again and say, Why does it matter who Jesus is? We're going to answer that, but I'm going to pray real quick. God, I just thank you today. For this opportunity, God, to present your word. God, I pray right now, God, that you would um, bring clarity to my thoughts. God, that as I communicate, God, that I would do an adequate job of explaining what I feel like your Holy Spirit impressed on my heart. God, I pray that today each person here, God, would be challenged by this word. God, and that conviction would fall. God, that it would change lifestyle. God, it would change thinking. God, it would change priorities because of understanding who you are and why you do what you do. And we just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. amen. So I'm going to give you only two points today. Before we get there, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. So last week I had um, Allie, and our do- Allie and I's dog, Ollie, at the office with me, our South Campus. How many people have been to South Campus before? So you guys know the field over on the other side. I had to take Ollie out to take care of business because she's a dog. Didn't want her to go in my office. You're right. That's like not a good idea. So I took Ollie outside. Let me preface this with going, um, Ollie listens to me really well, so I don't typically carry her or use a leash at South Campus. Like if I'm walking in the neighborhood, I will, but she listens to my voice pretty well. Lately, though, we have been walking from outside the office side, around the front of the building, in front of that fountain, over to the edge of the building. And at that point, Ollie just decides to go Usain Bolt and sprint as fast as you can to the field. 
which like early on, like she waited a little bit longer. So I'd be able to survey the parking lot and scream at her if there was a car coming or something, you know what I mean, or another dog. Now she doesn't listen. She's like, no, I don't care. I'm winning the 100 meter dash. So she decides to sprint off. So with that in mind, now I carry her till I'm in the middle of the parking lot so I can see everything. Then I let her go. So this particular time I let her go. She runs out to the gate. She goes to the bathroom and we're about to head back into the office when um, I'm standing at the gate calling Ollie to come over to me. By the way, she's a girl. If you didn't pick that up, her name's Ollie. I get a lot of flack for it. It's based off of Olaf. You can pray for her, okay? She's got a lot of issues. It's fine. Anyway, so we're at the edge of the gate. Come ask me later. I'll explain further, okay? We're at the edge of the gate, and all of a sudden, I hear someone screaming at me while driving down the street. And like two thoughts come to mind. Um, Why am I getting screamed at? Like, why does this have to happen while I'm out here? And then two, and I was not supposed to add this to the script. Allie read my manuscript and said, you can't say this word. I also asked my mother this morning. She said, I can't say it. So anyway, I thought in my head, because my thoughts, I was like, what idiot is coming at me? Okay, so you can talk to my mom later why that's not an appropriate word to use. But anyway, that's just what Trent's mind goes to. So this person, they come into the parking lot too. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like I don't have to deal with you. So again, keeping in mind with Ollie, like she listens well, but like I don't know what's going to happen. So I start cautiously walking back to the building and all of a sudden, Barry steps out of the car. And I was like, okay, like, I know you. It's totally fine. This wasn't a psycho. By the way, Barry, I don't think you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> strangers, on the other hand, that's, like, not a good thing to admit as a pastor. But, you know, I was in the heat of the day, you know? It's what is what it is. So, anyway, I start walking back. I have a conversation with Barry. And I'm thinking back now going, dude, I hope he didn't see my face. Because on my face, I was clearly showing the things I was thinking, that you're an idiot. So... <laughs> Anyway, long story short, the reason I told you this is because as I was thinking back later, it was funny to me because I was so put off by a stranger. But as soon as I recognized it was Barry, my guard dropped and I started to embrace him differently. And so here's the whole reason I told you this. And it's the answer to the question we're asking today in a simple way. So why does it matter who Jesus is? It matters because your view of who Jesus is can dramatically impact your life for good or bad. See, because similarly to my situation with Barry, where knowing who the person was dictated my response and approach to him, knowing who Jesus is dictates your response and approach to him. And this is groundbreaking. And we're going to get into it more as we, as we go through like, my next two points. But your view of Jesus can be hindering his work in your life. And I know that may sound a little bit blasphemous. I'm not trying to be theologically wrong, because God is sovereign and he can work beyond your view of him. But when your view is on him in the correct way, it will change your life. And I'll show you how in just a moment. So Matthew 16 shows us two different ways this is true. Why does it matter who Jesus is? Number one, because you can get it wrong. Turn your neighbor and say, you can get it wrong. If someone came up and asked you who Jesus was, how would you respond? I just want you to like think about that for a second. If someone said, hey, who is Jesus? How would you respond? Would you go, um, he does this for me? Would you believe that he's God and man? Would you believe um, that he was just a historical figure? Would you try to go to a practical experience of how Jesus has impacted your life? How would you respond? Now I'm going to need a volunteer to come up here and explain it for the rest of everyone else. No, just kidding. Um, that would be pretty, pretty, pretty intimidating, right? I wouldn't want to do it. I'm going to try to do my best today, but I wouldn't want to do that. And the reason I ask this question is because I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to wrestle with it because, again, I think you can get your view of who Jesus is wrong. And so I want you to start before I answer this question. I want you to go, man, do I have preconceived ideas or wrong ideas of who Jesus is? 
See, because depending on the lens you look at in the New Testament, you can see this truth all over. Number one, case in point, is the religious leaders of that day that killed Jesus. Like, just keep in mind, these religious leaders that, like, persecuted Jesus were the, like, saw the same exact Jesus and the same exact miracles as the disciples. So what's the difference between the disciples and them? Just their view, right? It's that simple. Their view of who Jesus was was wrong. They viewed him wrong, and it, it caused them to approach Jesus differently than they should have. Another example, which is one of my favorite, as I felt like the Holy Spirit gave this to me, is Saul, or better known as Paul, right? New Testament Paul. See, Paul dedicated his life for a moment to killing Christians. And then we see in Acts 9 the story of where Jesus comes and shows himself to Paul. And in this story, um, it's cool because um, Jesus goes, hey, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And in Acts 9, 5, Paul asks a question back, and he says, who are you, Lord? Paul didn't know who Jesus was. So what's the difference between Christian murdering Paul and, like, life-changing, like, church-shaping, history, legend, Paul? It's his view. The only thing that changed was his view. That moment when Jesus came down from heaven to earth and he said, why are you persecuting me? The only thing that changed in Paul's life was his view. So you see the power of this principle in your life. Your view of God determines how, how you approach him and how he can work in your life. And we see this in our story today, and not at, as an extreme level of the Pharisees or of Paul, but we do see it, and we see it in the, in, in the disciples' lives. See, you can't read the first 10 verses we read and, notice the, and not notice the dramatic difference between Matthew 16, 15 through 19 and Matthew 16, 21 through 23. So throw it up on the screen for me. So we, in, this is again, 10 verses. We see in one moment, Jesus say, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, blessed are you. And then he makes some promises and says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom and all this different stuff. What changed between that and then all of a sudden, get behind me, Satan, right? Like one moment, Peter's blessed. And next moment, he's called Satan. I'm like, that's not like a great encouraging thing, right? So what changed? I wanted to say that today what changed is Peter's view. See, in both instances, Peter viewed Jesus as the Messiah, which we're going to get into just a moment, a little bit more. The Messiah, but his view of the Messiah was wrong. And let me show you what I mean. When reading scripture, I think oftentimes we forget that like what we know now, the disciples did not know then. So we're quick to judge them based on what we know. We now know that Jesus died, rose from the grave, and he's changed our life, right? They did not know this. They were living this day by day. They had not seen the future in any certain special way. And so when Jesus said, you are the Messiah, they had a misinterpretation of what that meant. See, from my study and my understanding, all of the disciples were Jews, which meant that their view of the Messiah was preconceived to what the Jews believed. See, the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to be this military figure that was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and anybody else that stood in the way of Israel's kingdom and restore Israel to its former glory days when David ran, ran the country, right? This is what they thought the Messiah was. So when Jesus all of a sudden is like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to go and I'm going to die by the hands of religious leaders, Peter was like, no way. You're crushing what I have viewed you as this whole time. Do you understand like how much of a dilemma this caused in Peter? They were, they were, they were um, built on this idea of the, who the Messiah was. And you can imagine still when Jesus was persecuted and, and died, how much like hopelessness they felt. Because again, their like military amazing leader, the Messiah has, has died. And so when Peter said this, he was wrong. And what I want to point out to you today is I think we still do the same thing today. Not necessarily in the same context, but we oftentimes are guilty of looking at Jesus in the wrong view. Like, let that sink in. 
Charles Swindoll said over and over again, Jesus challenges people's expectations. It never ceases to amaze me how distorted or completely broken many people's opinions are about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how he feels about our personal attitudes and actions. The name of Jesus is often invoked to defend some religious, social, or political cause. He's often cited in support of something half, some half-baked ideology, philosophy, or theology. And a lot of people today readily accept a domesticated version of Jesus that confirms their prejudices, their views. If it's their worldviews or leaves their comfortable lives untouched. So in other words, humanity today is still guilty of defining a Jesus or God who they are comfortable with and who fits in their box. And I'm not saying necessarily that today, like, you need to, like, absolutely freak out and repent and go, like, man, I have screwed this all up. I'm not trying to make you, like, doubt your view of Jesus to a bad extent. But I want, to, I want to make sure you're asking the question of, have I let Jesus fall into my comfort zone of thinking rather than going, who is Jesus really? Does that make sense? See, and I think, I think there's proof in the world today that humanity has lost sight of who Jesus is. Will you throw up that next graphic for me? Um, in Pew Researcher, I think it was, it was like April 2018. Yeah, April 2018, April, or April, April 2018, Pew Researchers came out with this um, survey that they had done on 4,700 different um, participants. And what they asked these participants in America was, do you believe in God? So up the top question, do you believe in God? 80% of those respondents said yes, 19% said no, Okay. And then what they did further on this side is they went, okay, so do you believe in the God of the Bible or in some other high spiritual being? And so 56% of the people that responded said, yes, I believe in the God of the Bible, but 23% said, I just believe in some other higher power or spiritual force. Notice on the other side that also 9% said the same thing. So 33% of Americans in this survey said, I believe in a high spiritual force, but not the God of the Bible. That to me, in my interpretation, especially in light of this message we're talking about, is that they, these people that said, I don't believe in the God of the Bible, have created what's comfortable for them to believe in. In other words, they've made a God that fits their needs and that fits what they need for peace in their life, but they're uncomfortable with someone else defining who Jesus is for them. Does that make sense? See, because it's easier at times for us to only accept certain things of God right, without all of them. It's, it's easy to take the likable things without the difficult. It's easy to explore the easy to understand, but then neglect the hard and difficult to understand. Sometimes I think we just view God as a genie. We've said that before. Or a fire truck that just comes and puts out our fires, right? That's all he is. He's just a firefighter for us. But Jesus is who he is, plain and simple. He tells us who he is, and if you don't believe what he says, you're wrong. And this type of belief is unconventional, and it's now labeled as culturally insensitive, but it's truth. And so I want you to ask yourself today, how can Jesus change your life if, that Jesus, if the Jesus you believe in is the Jesus you've created? How can Jesus change your life if the Jesus you believe in is a Jesus you have created? And again, I'm not trying to make some of you freak out and go, oh my goodness, I believed a lie. What I'm wanting you to do is I want you to recognize and go, I need to hear who Jesus says he is. And if my picture of who that is does not align, I'm in the wrong. I need to change. I need to shift. Does that make sense? So number two today, why does it matter who Jesus is? When you get it right, it will change your life. When you get it right, it will change your life. And this is what we see in our text today. See, this eyewitness account of Matthew, in my opinion, like I said, is one of the greatest 
greatest stories, greatest things, greatest foundational pieces in Scripture. And I believe that for two reasons. Number one, it records the account of a significant moment in humanity's history where a human saw Jesus as Lord and Savior and had faith enough to declare it from their heart and say, I do believe this about you. Because that same principle is what we're all supposed to do today, right? We're supposed to say, Jesus, I believe, I believe that you are Lord and Savior. And so that was groundbreaking. The second reason I believe this story is groundbreaking is because it reveals two promises that I think can change your life if you understand the power of them. And that's what I found when I studied this passage. So let me show you why. In Matthew 16, 15, we see Jesus ask a question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Six verses later, it says, from that time on, say from that time on. Before I even study this passage, that, those words from that time on stood out to me because it signifies something just changed, right? You wouldn't say from that time on if, if, if everything was the same. One scholar said the very nature of the expression from that time on links what follows with what precedes. So in other words, what happened before this line significantly changed what happened after this line. So what just took place? I already told you. Peter declared Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's like crazy, but what's crazy for application today is what Jesus responded with to Peter. See, he said, Peter, or Peter confessed, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Even though this is, was skewed in Peter's opinion, he opened the door to a new life. See, in Jesus' response, he said, Peter, based on this confession, I'm giving you two promises. Let's hold up two, two promises. And so what I'm about to unpack these two promises is where this passage of scripture gets into that storm center of New Testament interpretation. So I'm going to do my best to explain this to you today, but I want you to just follow along because I know I'm getting like really theological. Some of you look glazed over. It's fine. God loves you. He'll explain it later. Okay. So promise number one, he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So in order to understand this promise, we need to understand two different and specific terms. First of all, we need to understand what's the kingdom of heaven. And two, we need to understand what are the keys to it. So most hear kingdom of heaven and think eternity, right? When God says kingdom of heaven, they're thinking, hey, this is heaven. This is eternal life, right? Stepping into, into eternal life. You're not wrong in thinking that, but you're not fully right either. See, kingdom of heaven, also used as kingdom of God in scripture, especially in the New Testament, they're both referring to eternal life and life on earth now. So I want you to think of like Wakanda in like, in Marvel, right? Where there's like this unseen kingdom that no one can a like access unless like you know about it, right? Like, you know what I'm talking about? Kingdom of heaven's like similar, but it's not like a specific place. It's just God's sovereign rule in the sense of like, unless you know about it, you're not really like living in it. And there's only one way into it. Uh, I think Charles, yeah, Charles Swindoll said, in the most general sense, God's kingdom refers to his eternal sovereign rule over heaven and earth, things visible and invisible. So in that sense, nothing ever was, is, or will be outside of God's will. So what basically happened is when Peter said, Jesus, you're the Messiah, he just unlocked the door and stepped into this kingdom of God. That's life on earth right now. Like nod your head if I'm making sense, okay? So this is, this is like what we want, right? God, Jesus, when he came down from heaven to earth, he brought in a new revelation of what the kingdom of God was. And he just said, Peter, you've just stepped into it. And that's where we need to understand what the keys are. When Peter said, Jesus, you are the Messiah, that was the key that unlocked the door to this kingdom. Like, again, nod your head if I'm making sense, okay? So hopefully for you today, you're going, you've already made this confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior. You stepped in this kingdom. Now you know about it. Let it change your life even more. 
And the reason I want to show you how G- I believe Jesus is the key is because Luke eleven fifty two, Jesus confronts the religious leaders of that day and says, Woe to you experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. So what I hear Jesus saying to them is that they were experts in the Old Testament, which the Old Testament all pointed to one person. You know who? Jesus. So they had hidden the key of Jesus, and they had refused to accept Jesus as the key. Does that make sense? So they didn't step into this kingdom. So that's promise number one, and that will change your life just in and of itself. That's like the salvation prayer. Jesus, I believe you are Lord and Savior. I confess that in my heart. I believe you died and rose again, and that's going to change my life forever, right? Like shake your head again like that's good stuff, okay? Promise number two, this is where it gets just crazy, all right? He says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. I have never understood this passage of scripture. Like, I don't know if I'm supposed to admit that, but like, I've had like ideas of it, but I never understood it until this week. And I, it just rocked my life. So I want, I want to share it with you. So in my, in my opinion, this promise stands for two things. But in order to understand them again, we need to ask some questions about this passage. First of all, what I want you to understand is the terms binding and loosing would have been very familiar to the disciples. Rabbis or teachers in that day used binding and loosing as common language. They would use it in, in terms of rules of conduct. So do and don't, right? Does that make sense? So also you can interpret binding and loosing as forbidding and permitting. So Jesus was saying, I am giving you permission to forbid and permit. So then the question becomes, what is Jesus giving you permission to forbid and permit? And in this case, and this again, this is why it's like like the storm setter of interpretation, okay? In this case, whatsoever, because it says whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, right? Whatsoever, Jesus is referring to people. That's what scholars believe. He's saying whoever, like whoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whoever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. To me, this sounds like a little bit crazy, right? So, and, um, sorry, I got to find my place. So what they explained and the scholars explained about this passage of scripture is that Jesus gave the disciples the keys to the kingdom. In doing so, they were able to forbid and permit entrance to anybody as they declared who and taught people um, who Jesus was. So on initial thought, when I was reading them, reading this, I'm like, this doesn't feel right. Like what man has authority to tell me I can't step into God's kingdom? Did anyone else think that when I said that? But what, what Jesus was actually saying was, as you declare me as the key, people who accept that key or don't accept that key are either allowed into the kingdom of heaven or not allowed into the kingdom of heaven. See, and this is where it gets confusing because in the in original language, people believe that Jesus spoke Aramaic and then Matthew's gospel was written in Greek and then now I'm reading in English. So our language is having trouble going, hey, this is what Jesus actually said. So a better interpretation would, is this, Matthew 16, 19. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So in other words, the disciples binding and loosing is an action already decided and willed by God. Peter does not have a special hotline to heaven to go, hey, this person can't make it in. They can't be a part of your kingdom. No, Jesus set the precedent that he said, if you want to enter my kingdom, you have to believe I'm Lord and Savior. The disciples were just actually redeclaring what Jesus was saying. And so this is powerful. This was cool. I was like, this is so awesome. How like the, the disciples ushered in to, the, to earth and basically said, here's the key. Whoever wants to enter the kingdom of heaven, accept it and you're in. If you don't accept it, you're not in. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom because you refuse to accept the key. So again, nod your head if I'm making sense. 
This is about to get crazy right here, okay? This is where, this is like, so that was cool. And then I felt like the Holy Spirit, which I also followed up with PK, and I like, I'm pretty sure other people have preached this, but for some reason it just like blew my mind because again, I never understood this passage of scripture. Because I think in the context of this passage, what I just explained to you is what Jesus meant, but the principle is much deeper than what I just explained to you. See, so again, go back to the idea that what Jesus was saying Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, meaning heaven has already bound or loosed something. And the disciples' key to, aka Jesus, was allowing them to step into that bound or loose thing. And so one commentator explained it like this Peter, the disciples, and the church as a whole would have authority to pronounce on earth what is true in heaven. They would have authority to pronounce on earth what is true in heaven. And to me, the root of the promise, more than presenting the gospel and people choosing to enter or not, to me, the root of the promise is that those who confess Jesus as the Lord and Savior and believe it in their heart, they now have God-given authority to pronounce in their life what is true in heaven. They have God-given authority to pronounce in their life what is true in heaven. See, Jesus was giving the disciples the authority to go. Heaven has already declared. God has already willed in your life certain things. And now that you believe I'm Lord and Savior, you can say, I bind and I loose these things in my life. Let me give you some examples. And I, I feel like people should stand up or something for this part. This is so good. All right. What is true in heaven is that I'm a child of God, so I loose that. What is true in heaven is that everything will work together for the good of those who love God, so I loose that. What is true in heaven is that what God started, he will complete, so I loose that. What is true in heaven is that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world, so I bind Satan. What is true in heaven is that God can surround me with peace beyond my understanding, so I loose that peace. What is true in heaven is that God is with me every moment of every single day, so I loose that. What is true in heaven is if I ask for wisdom from God, he will give it, so I loose that. What is true in heaven is that as I resist the devil, he will flee from me, so I bind Satan over my life. What is true in heaven that God, that, is that God has a plan for me, so I loose that plan. What is true in heaven is that God has set me free, so I loose it. What is true in heaven is that I'm forgiven and I'm redeemed, so I loose it. What is true in heaven is that God will meet all my needs, so I loose it. What is true in heaven is that God created me and he loves me loves me, so I loose that. And this is, and this is exactly why, this is exactly why your view of Jesus can change your life. Because the only way you tap into that authority of your life is if you wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe, confess, and surrender your life and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord over it. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave. I believe that you've forgiven my sins and you have given me access to this kingdom where I can bind and loose what is in heaven declared over my life here on earth in the present right now. So no matter how much Satan or the world tries to hinder me, I have a God in heaven who has already declared over my life in authority that I can take control over the surrounding around me and not be affected like those around me. And that's powerful. That's life-changing. So you, you're like, I feel like you have the answer. Why does it matter who Jesus is? Because he's going to change your life. He will change your life. And so this is why this series is so valuable. Because in the coming weeks, I feel like you could sum up every single I am statement of Jesus and go, actually, this I am statement just has to do with God changing my life and him being the Lord of my life. And we're going to get into specifically what that looks like. But the bread of life Jesus, he's your sustenance. He's the light of the world. He pierces through your darkness. He's the door that gives you access to the kingdom of heaven and beyond. He's the, he's the vine that we're attached to. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so I want you to walk away with today just a simple question in your mind. Why does it matter who Jesus is? Because he'll change your life. He'll change your life.
and I just, I don't know, so, something about this just clicked in me. That I was like, I could not get this on paper. I hope I explained it well enough, but it was like, I, I felt in my heart so strongly what I was trying to say, and I had trouble getting on a paper. Because I feel like, again, humans, like, unless you know who Jesus is, it's hard to even comprehend this principle. And that's why, like, for, for thousands of years, this mystery was hidden to humanity. Because Jesus had to come, and in Jesus' life, he had to explain to us, this is what God wants us to live and be a part of. And so in closing today, I want to just give opportunity for two responses. First of all, I want to give opportunity for you to accept the key and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. And two, I want to take a moment, and I want for everyone who's already accepted that key to just in their heart reaffirm what they have done and say, Jesus, I want to live in your kingdom And I want to experience the power of your kingdom in my thoughts, in my marriage, in my relationships, in my job, in how I live, in my purpose, in my convictions. So first of all, can we dim the lights today? I'm going to um, just ask if anyone, every eye closed, if anyone in here wants today to um, accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, would you just raise your hand today? Thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. Um... Anyone else today? All right, so church, I'm going to ask that you today would um, just keep your eyes closed, your head bowed, and that you would um, say this prayer with me. So if you, again, you want to make this commitment, if you want to accept this key, pray it with me today. And G- uh, Dear Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. I thank you that you came to this world and you are a Messiah. You are the savior of the world. I pray right now, God, that you would forgive me and that as I hand you my sin and my weight in my past, that you'd come into my heart and you'd be the savior of my world. And we just thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. So God, today again, we just declare as people made this declaration that, Lord, would you be our Savior, God, that even those people now that have already prayed this, God, would feel once again in their heart this recommitment that, Jesus, I do believe you're the key. I do believe that you're our Lord and our Savior. And so my second response today, and you don't have to raise your hand, this can just be something in your heart, is I just want to give 30 seconds of silence. And in this moment, I want you to say whatever you feel comfortable in in your prayer life to go, Jesus, I want to step into this kingdom of heaven in new understanding and new power. I want to understand who you are better. And I want to feel the impacts. I want to have the authority that you declared as a promise to those who accept the key. And so just take 30 seconds this morning and say that to Jesus and and whatever words you want to. God, so today I just come, God, and I affirm all those prayers that were just prayed. God, I come against lackadaisical Christianity. God, I come against comfortable Christianity. God, I come against um, anyone in here, God, that, or even Satan, the power in, in their life, God, that is, is hindering them from stepping into the power that you've declared in your son, Jesus. I just feel like you called to my mind today in Matthew 16, verses following where Peter rebuked you. You said, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves and pick up their cross and they must follow. And so today, God, that's the Christianity under which we want to live. 
a Christianity that's full of power, but it's full of conviction. It's not full of comfort, comfort, God. It's full of boldness, God, and faith. God, so I just pray right now over each person here today, God, that they would have a deeper understanding and revelation of who you are, God, and that it would change their life. God, that their understanding, God, would be seeds in the ground for the future generations to come. God, for their grandchildren, God, and their children, God, for those that they work with as coworkers, God, for those, they, for those of them that surround themselves every day with people. God, I pray that this life they're stepping into would completely change them, God, and in turn change everyone around them. And we just thank you for it today. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. I want to invite the prayer team up this morning. If you need extra prayer, you um, want extra prayer, we encourage you to come up and, and get that prayer. Um, and again, I would just encourage you today. I'm someone who thinks that you need to mull over what was said. And Trenton is not the best communicator in the world. So I think God and his Holy Spirit can give in your heart even more confirmation than I was able to describe to you today. So my challenge this week is that every day you'd wake up and go, why does it matter who Jesus is? As you go to bed at night, why does it matter who Jesus is? Because I believe as you start to ask that question, Jesus will confirm in your heart what was said today. And then in the weeks to come, as we go, this is who Jesus is. It's, gonna, it's going to open the door to a new life, a life that will change you, a life that will impact you. Is that good? Anyway, with that being said, I encourage you to fellowship, meet someone new, um, and have an amazing weekend. We'll see you in the weeks to come. Here at Relevant Life Church, it's our mission to see people connect with God, relate to one another, and reach our world. This single statement drives everything we do as a church. Our hope is that today you were encouraged in this. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.